0: Oh, can to see it. Right. Okay. Okay. Good afternoon. My name is Darlene Richardson and I'm president and CEO of Maisie Global Solutions, a consulting firm based right here in DC. I am so honored to be moderating this esteemed panel today. You're in for a real treat I'd like to welcome you to our Monday closing plenary, and thank you for joining us. And I'd also like to thank the National Minority Equality Forum for all that they do and for this summit on health disparities, which gives us a platform to discuss our topic, the state of obesity in communities of color, a coverage and access update. But first, let me give you some statistics that you may not know relative to obesity. Obesity is an epidemic in the United States and has been for decades. And the numbers are getting worse. Currently, we have over 90 million American adults of all ages living with obesity, including 30% of Medicare beneficiaries. When you add children and adolescents to the mix, there are well over 100 million Americans living with obesity. And as with most chronic diseases, higher rates of obesity exist within communities of color. The disease of obesity disproportionately affects adult Blacks and Latinos compared to White and Asian adults. The prevalence of obesity is highest among non-Hispanic Black adults at 49.6%, and Hispanic adults at 44.8%. Four out of every five Black women are living with obesity or overweight. So those are just some of the statistics, but we have this esteemed group of panelists here that are gonna help us understand what obesity is, why it's so prevalent, especially among communities of color, and how we can work with communities to help solve this issue. Now, before I introduce our panelists, I'm just going to give you their names, their titles, and the organizations they represent, because NMQF has been so kind as to do a hyperlink in the online agenda. So you can easily go there and find out everything these wonderful panelists have to offer. Um, And also at the end, like with the other sessions, we plan to uh, take questions. Okay, so first up, we have Dr. Michael G. Knight. Dr. Knight is the Associate Chief Quality and Population Health Officer, as well as an obesity medicine physician at the GW Medical Faculty Associates. Next, we have Dr. Yolandra Hancock. Dr. Hancock is the founder and CEO of Delta Health and Wellness Consulting. Next, we have... Dr. I mean, I'm sorry. Next, we have Deborah Frazier-House, founder of nonprofit organization Choose Healthy Life. And after that, we have Tammy Boyd. Tammy is chief policy officer and senior counsel at Black Women's Health Imperative. And last but certainly not least, we have Nancy Glick. Nancy is director of food and nutrition policy at the National Consumers League. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for having us. So we're going to start out with Dr. Knight. Dr. Knight, just so we level set the audience and we're all on the same page, could you please tell us what the clinical definition of obesity is and why
1: it's considered a chronic disease? Thank you, Darlene, for that question. You know, oftentimes we ask, what is obesity? And if I'm in with my medical students, the response will be a BMI of 30 or greater. But the reality is, it's much more complex than that. And I think if we level set and understand the complexities around obesity as a chronic disease, that can really start the conversation. So obesity is a chronic, relapsing, multifactorial neurobehavioral disease where an increase in body fat leads to or promotes adipose tissue dysfunction, as well as abnormal fat mass physical forces that then leads to adverse uh, metabolic biomechanical and psychosocial health consequences. And so when you think about that in totality, you then understand that we're not just talking about how somebody looks. We're actually talking about a a pathophysiologic process where our fat cells or adipose tissue that are really more of an endocrine organ because of the hormones and cytokines that they release actually go into a state of dysfunction. And that leads to a number, over a hundred disease processes that are affected, we can talk about maternal health we can talk about cardiovascular disease diabetes prostate cancer breast cancer and we're still coming back to the same point and so i think when we have that level set and we understand how much of this is a complex process that's actually a disease process and not just a number on the scale then we are know how imperative it is that we take obesity seriously mm-hmm. and we treat it comprehensively
0: so Often, I hear people say, why is it called a disease? I don't have a disease. How do we get people to understand? Because you can't begin to advocate for yourself until you understand what you
1: have. Right. I think understanding that not just this is the number you have to be, and if you get to that number, then you don't have a disease. It's really understanding how this amount of additional fat or excess weight is impacting the patient. We have many patients that are in the overweight category that don't necessarily have abnormal physiologic function, and that's not the top of my priority list to discuss with them. But for individuals that have a number of cardiometabolic disease processes that I know are being affected by excess weight, then that is an opportunity to have the conversation. So it's really a customized approach. And I think as healthcare providers, it's so important that we understand that and that we lead with that in the conversation not saying your BMI is X your the number on the scale is X so you are obese and you need to do something about it what do we tell them to eat less and exercise Exercise. more right and if that was the case I wouldn't have a job Um, (laughs) but the reality is that it's so much more complex than that and when we have those discussions that really opens the door for a different level of understanding
0: You mentioned something that I would like to know more about, and I'm sure our audience would also. You mentioned maternal health, and we talk a lot about uh, maternal mortality and how black women are impacted, and it has nothing to do with the socioeconomic uh, uh, state of the person. Is there a connection between the levels of obesity in black women and maternal
1: mortality. So I think there is a connection. Of course, we're not going to discount the the variety of other things that play a role, including structural racism and a variety of discriminatory practices that is still present, unfortunately, uh, in in our field. But I think when we think about obesity, we know that over 25% of pregnancy-related complications are directly linked to excess weight or obesity. And we also know that it is an independent risk factor for things such as preeclampsia and pregnancy-related hypertension, which we know play a role in maternal outcomes. So of course, it definitely is. And even when we talk about preconception counseling, so our patients that come in and say, I'm thinking about getting pregnant, I'm ready to start a family. Are we having a discussion that even 10 to 20 pound weight loss can significantly decrease your risk and increase the opportunity for you to have a healthy pregnancy? Not just going back to a normal BMI, we're talking about small changes. And unfortunately, we talk about almost everything else in those visits, and we're not talking about something that truly is low-hanging fruit.
0: Absolutely. Um, Can you please tell us about the obesity continuum of care? And do people living with obesity have full access to the continuum of care? Yeah.
1: So the continuum of care you're thinking about, of course, foundationally, we're talking about Physical activity, mm-hmm. dietary change, lifestyle modification, but that is just the beginning. Uh, oftentimes, when we talk about this, folks say, you know, that's if, if I just address my diet and, and exercise, then I won't have an issue. And that may be the case for a small percentage of individuals. But for many individuals that are dealing with a, a large amount of excess weight that are going to require sometimes over 100 pounds of weight loss, we have to think about everything on that continuum. That includes pharmacotherapy. That includes surgical options for eligible patients. We have come a long way since the times in the 90s when we know that very common medication was out and had to be pulled from the market because of the cardiac effects. But the, uh, the idea is that today we have a number of FDA approved medications that are effective, Uh, but unfortunately not always available to our patients. I will tell you personally spend hours every week doing prior authorizations and discussing and fighting with insurance companies or other payers to cover um, agents that we know are effective for obesity and as well as surgical uh, impact. And we know that bariatric surgery for eligible patients is oftentimes one of their best chances for having clinically significant weight loss. And so when we talk about a continuum, when we talk about treating obesity, we're not just talking about those foundational elements of diet and exercise, but also thinking about a holistic approach of what is available to them. And then starting a conversation is how do we ensure access access and coverage for our patients that need it the most?
0: Thank you, Dr. Knight. I'm going to bring Dr. Hancock into the conversation. Um, Dr. Hancock, you graciously share on LinkedIn your personal experiences in relationship to social determinants of health. Now, I know a lot of our, our audience here knows what social determinants of health is. However, we have patients, we have consumers, we have a lot of people who may not understand that and the connection to obesity. Can you help us with that?
2: Absolutely, first just thank you guys so much for having me here, it's such a pleasure. When we think about the social determinants of health, those are the factors where a person is born, grows, learns, lives, works, worships, and ages that affect 80% of their health outcomes. Accessing doctors like myself and Dr. Knight only make up about 20% of someone's health outcomes. So when we talk about something like obesity, we have to really think through what are those factors that either influence the development of obesity or protect against it. Those factors can include income, workspace, the neighborhood environment, education and literacy, right, in terms of coming to a community and being able to shop and knowing what to purchase in terms of healthier options. Race, and more importantly, racism, are direct influences in terms of access. And so when we think about obesity in terms of choice, a lot of times in lay public, people perceive it as just a choice, right? If you don't eat as much, if you exercise more, then you should be able to lose weight. But it's important to take into consideration what those social determinants of health are, because our choices are driven by where we live. Your zip code here in the District of Columbia, I use it as an example because I've worked in DC for a long time. In DC, we're divided by wards, wards one through eight. If you live in wards one through three, you're in a relatively affluent, predominantly white area. If you live east of the river, particularly in wards 7 and 8, it's under-resourced and predominantly black. In Ward 3, there are 16, one-six, full-service grocery stores, not just the corner market, but full-service, right? That's one grocery store for every 9,000 people in Ward 3. If you live in Wards 7 and 8 combined, three grocery stores, If you live in Ward 8, that's one grocery store for every 85,000 residents. And it's not just the food deserts, which is how we would define Ward 7 and 8, but it's also something that we call food swamps. So when I worked in Southeast D.C. right off of Alabama Avenue, my families would have to walk through a gauntlet of fast food establishments to then get to a grocery store, right? And if you went to that grocery store, the other social determinants are pricing and quality. And so I would go to the grocery store to experience what it was like for my families to go to this particular grocery store. I got home, purchased a good four pounds of cherries, half the bag was bad, oh. right? But the other social determinant that I had possession of was transportation. I got in my little tercel at the time because I had just gotten out of residency and rolled up to to the grocery store and brought the cherries back but I also had the self-efficacy in knowing that I had the power to bring the cherries back I did not travel with two children back to the grocery store on a bus Right? we think about that a mother with two kids going on a bus to go get groceries now she's having to manage her two children all of her groceries and then getting back home and prayerfully these children will be able to appreciate and enjoy the healthy meal that she has created and if they don't then it's the food waste that this parent has to experience and may not be able to afford. And so we have to take into consideration all of those things, both for adults and for children when we talk about the social determinants linked to obesity.
0: Thank you so much. That was so helpful. Um, along the obesity continuum of care that we just discussed with Dr. Knight, what has been your experience with adequate access to anti-obesity medicines in your practice?
2: It's been a challenge, right? So I see folks across the age spectrum, but particularly in the pediatric population right now, there are only two FDA approved medications for me to use in my arsenal to help families in terms of helping their children achieve a healthier weight. There's stigma related to parents using anti obesity medications. And then there's the process that Dr. Knight mentioned in terms of prior authorization. And then it's a lot of questions that parents have. There aren't sufficient clinical trials that have evaluated some of these very efficacious medications in terms of the pediatric population. And for children under the age of 12, we really don't have any options. We end up having to use medications that are off-label. And there are a lot of healthcare providers who are not comfortable doing that because of the medical legal implications. So when we think about it from a medical standpoint, and also from other other specialties, right? So for my pediatric patients, it isn't just me talking to them and navigating parents through healthier choices. There are mental health aspects, there are psychosocial aspects, even things like obtaining sleep studies and those sorts of things. If a pediatrician or other healthcare professional isn't familiar with all of the various complications associated with obesity, the obesity continuum of care stops with the primary care provider. And that happens often.
0: Wow. Okay, thank you. Now we've been talking about coverage and we've talked about access and you guys delved into some of the coverage uh, issues. So I'd like um, Tammy uh, to talk about coverage of, um, anti-obesity medicines and what's going on in that field, but I would really like to start with um, you represent Black Women's Health Imperative. Can you tell me some of the initiatives that are going on in Black Women's Health Imperative relative to uh, the obesity issue?
3: Um, Yes, absolutely. So again, I'm Tammy Boyd with Black Women's Health Imperative. Um, and Black Women's Health Imperative, for many of you may not know, it's a national um, organization, and we're really focused on advocating for black women and girls through policy, advocacy, um, and research. But specifically to your question, um, we have two programs. Um, One is called Reclaim Your Wellness, which we launched with Healthy Women. Um, And it's to raise awareness um, of obesity as a national health crisis in a manner that is free of stigma and bias. Um, There are a couple of components to that, um, educating about healthy eating, um, also access to science-based comprehensive um, care. Um, Additionally, We are bringing um, leaders together to really discuss and and advocate for policy changes in this area. Um, And then also, as you may have heard last week, we launched the um, Health Equity um, Coalition for Chronic Diseases in collaboration actually with National Minority Quality Forum, and also the National Hispanic Medical Association, along with several other um, healthcare organizations as well. Um, And and that um, is focused on eliminating barriers of healthcare for communities of color um, that are disproportionately impacted um, by chronic diseases such as obesity. Great.
0: Um, What is the current state of coverage of anti-obesity medicine? Are there federal health providers that do provide coverage for this?
3: Yes. So the Federal um, Employees Health Benefit Program, also the VA, and then also TRICARE. Um, Medicare does not um, um, provide coverage. And so it's really, um, you know, outdated policy that we really would like to address. And why is Medicare coverage so crucial? Um so it's 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 definitely crucial in terms of, you know, um for Medicare, many of your private payers sort of follow um, you know, once Medicare covers. And so we are advocating on um, Capitol Hill uh, for this called the treatment reduced um, obesity, treatment Reduce um obesity act. Um and advocating which allows for one part one component of it allows for um coverage or anti obesity medications.
0: Okay, so you mentioned Troa. Um Where does that stand, and are there other pieces of legislation where coverage for anti-obesity medicines could be addressed?
3: Yes, so TROA has been introduced um, in Congress. It's H.R. 1577-1577. It was introduced by Senator Tom Carper um, and also uh, Congressman um, um, Ron, I'm sorry, Congressman um, Ron Kine. And also... Um, tomorrow, um, when the health equity legislation is introduced, um, TRO is actually um, included in that legislation. So we're advocating um, on Capitol Hill in the House and the Senate, but then also we're, you know, there are other vehicles that we can include TRO and we're also doing that as well.
0: Great, thank you, Tammy. Now we're going to move on to see how our next panelists have been successful in engaging the community as well as consumers in the effort to address the epidemic of obesity. I'm going to start with uh, Deborah Frazier-Howes. Deborah, many groups have worked with faith-based organizations regarding health education in communities of color, but your organization, Choose Healthy Life, through the National Black Clergy Health Leadership Council has really brought attention to the role of faith and health in a new and exciting way. Um, can you tell us about your organization and sure. um, how you've been successful in educating leaders across
4: the country? Yeah, you choose healthy life. Um, a lot of it comes out of my work in HIV and AIDS. I'm the founder of the National Black Leadership Commission on AIDS. And in that capacity, I organize black clergy all over the country. To deal with uh, with HIV, unbiased um, and and from an advocacy and policy position, they also brought millions and millions of dollars of resources into their communities. They wrote legislation. We had clergy doing things that people had never seen clergy do before. You know, in meetings with uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes and Reverend Calvin Butts coming together on Capitol Hill calling all the members of Congress into a room to tell them what it was they wanted. Very clear that um, people ask them for things all the time when they're running for election. But once they win, they sort of walk away. These clergy are very, very clear that they owed something. And when my community is dying, you will come and you will get us what we want. So when we had testing deserts in the community, we had the pastors, Reverend Warnock is one of the pastors, long before he became senator, just pick up the phone and call the governor, make them give us the vaccines. Mm -hmm. make sure that we're addressing the testing deserts. How can we as a community sit back and watch them put black bodies in black bags in, in back of black refrigerator trucks and not see how imperative it is that we bring the leaders of our communities together. This is based on, you know, and the African tradition of bringing the leadership, the council of leaders to the table. Don't throw that away. There's nothing wrong with us. We are we are very clear on what needs to happen. Um, it all depends too on how you look at your community, because I I, I remember the story about. A, a, a young boy who was being told, um, who was being introduced by somebody, and the moderator decided to, you know, really stress how terrible this kid had been brought up. And, you know, and this kid was in a fatherless home. And the first thing this young man said when he got up is that my house wasn't fatherless, it was motherful. Mm. So you have to mm. start. Thank you. I'm glad that the community is here and understands that. Yeah. You have to start with the way you perceive the people you are dealing with. They are motherful, they are, they, they are okay. I wanna acknowledge Dr. Stanford, who's in the, uh, in the, in the audience. Is certainly she could run this whole situation by herself, but she <laughs> is newly a member of the medical committee that the clergy put together, reaching out to her as an expert on obesity. They also reached out to Tom Frieden from the CDC, Dr. Sullivan from Morehouse. We put together, you know, uh, uh, Donna Christian Christensen, who used to be in Congress, uh, and the female black uh, physician. We have put together a medical committee second to none when COVID hit, because we were not confused about who we needed to get out our information from we needed to get our information from people that we trusted because we were people that the community was going to trust so i want to say that how you look at the community how you respond to the community being respectful of of the community and the last thing i want to say about how we got people to sort of move and galvanize we started with with five uh cities new york newark detroit uh, atlanta and washington dc picked 10 churches in each of those cities and gave them the money. We went out and got the money. We didn't ask the government for anything. We went out and got the money from Quest Diagnostics, our partner, and we gave each church money to hire full-time a public health navigator in the church that went out and did a whole... It's it, it's, it's been a beautiful thing. I'm even excited so excited about it they did a whole survey of the community of 15 mile radius they can tell you where everybody in that community is what they do where they live all of that and then they brought people into the church remember the churches were closed they brought people into the church for services for testing services and then they had to pivot to vaccines we gave them 1500 hours of training they're certified they know what they're doing. So when I hear people, you know, from corporations say, "Oh, you know, we have so much trouble in getting the community in the clinical trials," getting it. who are you talking to? I mean, and 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 there is a way to do this where people understand that you're being respectful of mm-hmm. them, and there's a way to do it where people understand that you're not. Finally, we grew from. 50 churches in the 5 cities to 120 churches in 13 states overnight. All of them did fine. We vaccinated and tested over 100,000 people in a matter of weeks when people couldn't get vaccinations done. So we're now pivoting to talk about issues like like obesity. God knows we need to talk about it. I need to talk about it because so, I'm, I'm certainly overweight so, and have had trouble with, with obesity for many, many years. And we know that this is three-legged stool that are killing that, that caused our community to have a disproportionate amount of death during COVID. Never again will we allow ourselves to be caught out of here like this right. again. Never again. We know it's hypertension, we know it's, it's obesity, and we knew it was diabetes. They were turning us over because we couldn't breathe because we were so heavy and I, everything was constricted. And we had all of those other fat issues that, that, that the doctors have already, have already discussed. And we know we eat too much sweet potato pie. We don't, you know, we don't need to, to, to beat that to death for us, but we don't know how to respond to it. And we need people who respect us to talk to us and help us with the tools that we need. And some of the tools, are some things that Tammy said, some of the tools are surgery, some of the tools are medicine, whatever the tools are, make the tools available. You know that when you get us down like 10% of our body weight, it changes our life. We can be non-diabetic. We can do all the things that we need to do. We need to really look at the community, respect the community, and do the right thing because you all know what the right thing is.
0: Thank you so much, Deborah. That was really powerful. So I want to bring Nancy Glick in.
5: Well, that's a hard act of power.
0: Wow. Wow. (laughs) So Nancy, uh, can you start out by briefly telling us the mission and goals of the National Consumers League, especially in relationship to food and nutrition policy which which you head up
5: well the national consumers league is over a hundred years old and it has been sort of at the cornerstone of a lot of things that we now take for granted um you know safe meats um nutrition labeling uh and we are what we consider to be the uh voice of everybody, because we consider all Americans to be consumers, which sort of empowers me to go after things like obesity, because, you know, we sort of think of ourselves, we're not uh, health providers, uh, but we uh, hear from consumers every day. We sort of know what's on their mind, and what we do very often is we sort of serve as a, a a credible third party, a convener, a catalyst. uh, And we bring together folks and we ask big questions and then we try to help uh, work on policy. So uh, we are part of this group called OCAN, uh, Obesity Care Advocacy Network. We're very excited because we're sort of the consumer voice for that. Uh, Tammy, you're a part of it too and um so we became very interested in sort of all the challenges of obesity and i should sort of back up by telling you and i was telling you about this that um i started my career when i was 12. i get younger every time i tell the story <laughs> pretty soon i'll be six but anyway um i was a journalist that came to washington um i hope to get an important job and you know with the Washington Post they laughed at me because I had two years of experience (laughs) anyway I became a press officer at the Food and Drug Administration and at the time we all had different beats you know I I did food policy which is sort of how I ended up doing food policy Um, and when I was there there were these very low calorie diets and we're talking about low calorie diets like less than 600 calories a day and just so you know that's about what concentration camp victims you know live with I mean it's barely enough to stay alive and what had happened was people hoping you know for these miracles you know I'll go on this for a month I'm gonna drop 30 pounds I'll get in that black dress I'll go to you know my party you know I'm gonna look great at uh, my wedding Um, they took these things and then they started to eat and many of them died and the reason they died is because their bodies just couldn't handle the stress of normal eating after that well I became fascinated first of all you know it was my beat I also did recalls which was an interesting sidebar and you know media were saying, well, you know, how did this happen? And so I started way back when um, thinking about obesity, doing it from the standpoint of FDA. Then I became a health advocate and worked with a number of, of organizations. And one of my greatest clients, was Dr. C. Everett Koop. And I don't know how many of you remember him, but he's probably the only Surgeon General we can all remember, you know, wore the suit, the beard, the whole bit. And I used to pick up the phone and I would say, this is Nancy Gleck. And I heard this voice said, this is C. Everett Koop. And I went, oh, right. (laughs) I didn't believe, and he goes, yes, it is. Anyway, he hired me to launch a campaign in 1994 on obesity, because he said that it was the unfinished business he had as Surgeon General. He had taken on HIV AIDS and smoking, but this was his unfinished business. And so I helped him put together this campaign called Shape Up America. And I have to tell you that I'm a pack rat, so I kept all my materials that I'm proud of. And I could give you those materials and all I need to do is replace the numbers from 1994 in terms of how big a problem obesity is. It was less of a problem then and he had his hair on fire over it back in 1994. So um, one of the things that we did in joining OCAN is we decided that we would put together a expert panel, as we called it, on the state of obesity with the mindset of how we could empower everyday Americans, consumers, to do something about it. And um, if you want to ask me a question
0: about it, I have lots,
5: I can tell you about that.
0: Well, yes, just yeah. briefly, if you could go yes. through what some of the takeaways were
5: well so what we did is we did a very holistic view all the statistics you've heard of and what we decided to look at was what we call the human side of obesity why is it that we have not been able to get ahead when the science is so good these days when there are really impressive treatments when we know that what you said that a 10 percent decrease in, in body mass has these profound health benefits. So why can't we do it? And some of it is the human obstacles and I'll put uh, insurers and particularly Medicare in this bucket because there's a lot of outdated thinking. I mean, I, I, it infuriates me that Medicare will not cover um, anti-obesity medications, why? because they're still living in the past of the 1990s and haven't gotten up to date on the fact that these new drugs are safe and they work. And not only do they work, but they reduce the, the whole burden of chronic disease. So ultimately, Medicare would be saving a fortune if they would just you know, allow Medicare beneficiaries to get these drugs. So that's one human obstacle. Another one that is very relevant here is this whole issue of weight stigma and how profound it is and how terrible it is in terms of what it means for people. So, um, you know, there, there are many things to tell you except for the fact that so many health professionals, um, are, uh, what would you say? They, um, they have this problem of weight stigma. And so it is not uncommon for people to go in to uh, their health care professional, um, be looked down on, um, not be spoken to with great respect, but more importantly, be sort of told to just go out there and lose a few pounds. And as some of our panelists are talking about, if you've got a hundred pounds to lose, do you think Weight Watchers is going to solve that problem? It's not. And didn't they already try it probably 10 times? There are statistics on how many times people have tried and failed on some of these things because they can't get the, the right medical advice and then they can't get access to care. So one of the things we're doing, and I really am going to invite all of you to help me. Um, we one of our calls to action is to create a Bill of rights for people with obesity. Uh, we want to be able to empower people to act on their, on their own behalf. If you've got a doctor who looks down on you and discriminates against you, fire him. Get a yes. new doctor.. <laughs> You know, fight with your insurance company. I mean, we need to empower people. I'm a cancer survivor. I spent a long time fighting for my care. And I survived a cancer that should have killed me. But what I realized is that all of us have to be empowered. I had really good doctors. And I had that patient navigator that we were talking about. So we really need to help people, first of all, understand they do have a disease and maybe that's a bit of a downer but if you think of it as I have diabetes, okay, so let me get care. I have obesity, let me get care. So we wanna sort of reorient people on that um, and we want to really empower them to have a conversation. We want them to know what's available to them uh, and we wanna make sure that um, Ensures cover all uh, available options for obesity. And I welcome any of you who want to contact me as we start to put together this Bill of Rights because we really want it to be meaningful, so please. Thank you so much,
0: Nancy. Mm -hmm. Um, We have got about 15 minutes left and I would like to open it up for questions. I know a lot of you have questions. I think there were some very compelling stories here, some compelling facts. Um, Deborah's doing some great things with her organization, and Nancy is certainly doing some great things with her organization, and then there's a coverage aspect. So please, um, if I can see, I think there are microphones around, so...
6: user experience work for NMQF, um, I was curious about, um, in the effort to, you know, erase white stigma, um, it, I've seen the body positivity movement, um, you know, one of their head, um, mottos is "healthier in any size, um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about the messaging, because. Uh, I think that the body positivity movement has the potential to do so much good, and erasing stigma and some of the you know the social psychological effects that people face. Um, but then also, like, if it's addressed as a disease, like I feel like people might be inclined to see that as adding more stigma
0: curious what your thoughts are about having to navigate that. Dr. Hancock or Dr. Knight? You... I think it's, it's an excellent
2: question especially in pediatric obesity. We have to be very careful when we talk with our little ones about weight. I will tell you in my personal experience as a pediatrician and an obesity specialist, we talk about health habits. When a little one comes in to see me, they are the first people I talk to. I don't talk to mommy or daddy, I ask them. I ask first, Do you understand why mommy, daddy, grandma, grandpa, whoever brought them in, and they'll say no or yes, and then we'll go through and talk about various health habits. I know all of these various health habits influence their weight. So their sleep habits, nutrition, physical activity, and it isn't just do you exercise, it's how do you feel about exercise? When you hear the word physical activity, what does that mean to you and how do you feel about it? Oh, I love physical activity. I play soccer, I hate it, I don't like exercise. Write that down. So I'm taking notes as we're talking in each category. We're focusing on various health habits that I know have influenced how this child, young adult, even grown-ups have achieved that weight. And then we start focusing. I give them a menu of options. All right, my love of all of the things that we've talked about, what is the best way to get you healthier? What do you want to do? Do you play sports? And we try to link it, right? So if they're playing a sport, we talk about your body as the machine, as the equipment, and what do we need to do to fuel the machine? so that you become the optimal soccer player or your dancer, whatever the case may be. Even in playing video games, right? My baby brother grew up gaming. So what can you do in order to really focus more to be able to get to that next level? And then I let them pick. This is what I want to focus on. It may be sleep, it may be their sugary drink, whatever the case may be, we focus on that. And at the next visit, we check in. How did you do? And then we go to the next area and the next area. It's baby steps, right? And we celebrate them. We're not in there trying to get everybody to be a size two. I tell, my family says all the time, I need. I look like I need to eat some more sandwiches, right? My family, they can be a size 20 and be perfectly healthy. I have family members that are a size zero having survived a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be mindful of one, how we approach it. I think, especially for black women, one of the things that I love, I love everything about us. But one of the things that I really love about us is how we love Ourselves in terms of how we present. We can be a zero or we can be a 20 and we're still rocking it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important when folks show up in doctor's offices, when we roll up, when my mother and grandmother show up confident in their brand new outfit to go see the doctor, no one can tell them anything when they get on that scale because they're confident in who they are. And I think that's what's most important for us as healthcare professionals is not to force anyone to dim their light simply based on a number on a scale.
4: I agree. And I, and I just I want to add that, that speaking directly to the community in that sort of positive light is very important. The reason why we call Choose Healthy Life what it is is because it comes out in the book of Deuteronomy, Choose Life So That Thou and Thy Seed Shall Live. And the, and the impetus of that is that you have the ability to choose life over death. Don't let anybody take that away from you. And the community heard that. And they accepted it. We do have the ability to choose life over death. So the message resonated, and one of the reasons why we were so it was so easy to sort of organize people around that sort of thought because it was a positive thought, and it it put them in power and not in weakness.
0: Those were that was an excellent question, by the way, and great answers. I see we have a couple of more people here.
7: Make that mic next.
0: I cannot even see
4: for the light. I <laughs> can
1: see the lights. Is okay. There. Hi. Uh, so my name is Mitchell. I'm with Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. Uh, so I'm relatively new to uh, this space, but um, I'm aware of some people that are um, stigmatized by going to the doctor's office because they're required to be weighed each time. Uh, so I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on that as like a, uh, a movement to focus on to help de obesity. Yeah, I'll I'll take that one. Um, You know, I think, again, it's a conversation. What are you using this this information? How is this a part of my uh, evaluation for today? I think when we have those kind of conversations, and it's clear, there's some patients that ask me not to tell them what their uh, weight is. And we, you know, I will say, you hit another milestone, I'm not gonna tell you exactly what it is, but I'm seeing the progress. Again, because that's what I'm focused on. Now, every time you go to an eye exam, do you need to get, you know, weight? You know, what is your eye doctor doing with that information? Right. I don't know. So again, it's thinking about how are we using this but also understanding that it's important for us to track progress just the way that we're looking at blood pressure a heart rate again if there is a reason behind it it's taking the time to explain that to the patient and then also having a a understanding when we talk about stigma once again We've got to move away from a number on the scale, a specific BMI. We know that the BMI is not perfect. It does not really consider where someone is carrying the weight. It does not also consider the uh, relation with uh, abnormal metabolic Conditions and particularly with racial and ethnicity differences. So we know, for example, that in African-American women, we really don't start seeing a large uh, connection with cardiometabolic disease until we get to a BMI of about 30. And so even when that person is in the overweight category, I may not be pushing as hard because I know. Again, where is this person carrying the weight? If the weight is being carried in the abdominal region versus the hips and thighs, it's in the hips and thighs. It is very different uh, how, how it might be impacting that individual. And on the flip side, you have individuals from East Asian communities where actually a BMI of 25 is abnormal. And so, once again, it's understanding and having a conversation with our patients so they feel empowered, so they are not stigmatized, so we understand why we're tracking this information, and then coming up with a personalized goal for them. You don't have to be a two, you don't have to be a number. I always say, what's your weight loss goal? I never tell a patient, what weight I want them to be at. I will give them recommendations. I will tell them, you know, at least 10% would be effective in improving your health outcome. But it's centering the patient and understanding their personal goal and helping them to achieve it. Thank you. There's
0: also third
2: party payers requiring certain metrics in order for us to be reimbursed. That's a conversation that also has to be had. There are a lot of conversations about doctors randomly checking weights, like dermatologists, right? Going and getting a weight. Well, what's that got to do with my mole? Well, if a third party payer is requiring weight, height, and all of these things, then it compels us to do just that.
0: Thank you. That, that's, that's something I didn't know. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that, that's good information for everyone. Let's go to this side.
7: Hi, Stephen Thomas, University of Maryland School, of Public Health, College Park. You know what? Uh, This is an amazing panel here. I just love this conversation. Mm -hmm. I agree. (laughs) Let me just tell you uh, uh, what it means when we do cultural tailoring. When I say physical activity, different images come to your mind. Well, in some of our work, we use uh, black history. So we created the Underground Railroad Bicycle Route. Google that. (laughs) And so riding the bicycle was a way of, you know, but it was tied to black history. But I'll never forget bringing a group of psychiatrists into our African dance class, where the, the brothers in the community were playing the drums, 25, the place was packed, and these were traditionally built women, African dance. And they were moving. You know what the psychiatrist said to me? You have anybody that hasn't started this yet? Because they knew something the people didn't know. Those women in that African dance class they were not depressed (laughs) that the physical activity itself can help reduce depression can you speak to the mental health benefits of just being active whether you lose weight or not just the mere fact of being active can you speak to that
2: Absolutely. So as a Zumba instructor and having taken the African dance classes, I can attest to what Dr. I said. I it. But it's important. I think what, the first thing that I would say is we have to acknowledge that committing time to physical activity can sometimes be a position of entitlement, right? So I grew up in an amazing household. I was motherful. Yep, right? right. My mother worked two jobs and she was like the first hustler grinder I met. And she inspired <laughs> me to do what I do today. Mm-hmm. But what I will tell you is that in raising two children and working two jobs. She saw exercise, physical activity as yet another thing to put on her plate, another stressor. Now i got to figure out when am I going to exercise, right? And I think if we talk about joy, when we talk about the black women's health imperative, we always talk about the joy in, in who we are, and when we can connect to what Dr. Thomas mentioned, the joy that comes from a 45 to 60 minute Zumba class where I make you sweat out your press. Mm -hmm. Like you won't Mm -hmm. know how you love it until you do it. But in order for us to do it, to my queen's point, we have to connect and relate and have conversation. I need to go where you are. Okay. On a Sunday after church, I'm going to say, take your church hat off. We're about to get the Zumba in real quick and praise the Lord. Right. Those are the things that we have to do. It can't be going to the rec center, joining the gym. It has to be right where they are. And when I worked for, for um, Children's here, I, gave, I did free Zumba classes at our health center. So on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you could come rock with Dr. Yola. And we got it in. And our health center was right there in the community. You walked across the street, even when you just got off work, you bring you and the babies and we had some snacks so that you didn't come <laughs> hungry or leave hungry. So that's the way we do it. We, we lead by example, but we also partner with our community so that they can fully appreciate that physical activity isn't boot camp, hit yoga and all these things. I remember some students came to me, they're like, well, we wanna create this new program. We're gonna give everybody yoga mats. And they were upset because the mommies used the yoga mat to address postpartum depression. And I was like, number one, have you ever been a new mother? Who's got time for to hit a yoga mat? It's next week's postpartum. Like, no, I'm still trying to figure out breastfeeding and sleep. Yes. Right. And they were upset because the moms used the, the yoga mats as changing pads. I said, did you at least talk to the family? They Does it, it, are they down with yoga first? I know we got downward dog, but are they down with the yoga? Right. Find out, do they want African dance? Do they want Zumba? Meet them where they are and partner with them to find that joy. Right. Absolutely
0: thank you thank you we're going to go over here and then this one and then we'll wrap that wrap it up
8: all right excellent uh dr gabriel felix psychiatrist, resident cambridge uh, and i'm so thankful for the questions before particularly when we talk about mental health but i was wondering as we talk about obesity uh particularly in bipoc communities uh focusing on black people do we ever talk about those eating disorders too that may be masked uh, simply because someone has a higher BMI, because I find that I'm asking more patients, particularly my black patients, and I'm finding that that's a lot more prevalent than even I thought, maybe due to my own bias, but is that conversation also part of, you know, your clinical encounters, even being in the community in churches and things like that, like anorexia,
1: bulimia, and things such as that matter? I'd say definitely, you know, when we think about rates of disordered eating, extremely high particularly in the last two years with the COVID-19 pandemic, I will tell you the numbers continue to go up. And once again, that is why it requires us to have a comprehensive approach. I'm spending at least 40 minutes with a patient on our first visit to understand what has their lived experience been. And every patient has a different experience with obesity. Some individuals, it's just been the last two years. Some people it was after pregnancy, some people it was the time going through menopause, but understanding that. But if I don't take it seriously, if I don't see obesity as something that's worth my, time to discuss but I'd rather just prescribe something and get you in and out then I don't have an opportunity to identify those issues and so once again we have to do the training We have when we talk about the work we're doing in medical schools and other health profession schools and nursing schools in our faculty training to understand how do we incorporate it. The patient comes into my office and their sugar is 500 I'm not just sending them out and saying eat less exercise more. I mean when we think about what our patients are dealing with on a day to day basis whether they're in a safe community to be physically active whether they have time to be physically active whether they're passing not only food that's more affordable but that is specifically marketed to our community and actually tastes good to go across town and pay five times as more for a meal that's only going to serve them and not the whole family right where when we think about what we're facing it's almost like if everything is stacked against many of our individuals who are living in food swamps, as Dr. Hancock outlined, where it's not by chance. The zoning laws, the infrastructure, the city planning has particularly devalued our communities and placed them in a position to have the highest risk of the poorest health outcomes. And we wonder why in COVID-19, in every other condition that we're dealing with, we're always at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And so we have to continue to advocate for that, but also to say, let's address the underlying issues. Let's address why my patient can be more physically active. Let's address why they're not able to access food that I will think is more nutritious for them, and let's come up with a plan to address it. And only then, when we have those real conversations, are we gonna see actual change.
0: Mm -hmm. Ooh, preach doctor night. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great, okay, one last question here.
8: Thank you, Um, this panel's been amazing. I am uh, Nosa Egwai, Uh, I am from Baxter Healthcare, a uh, healthcare company based in uh, Chicago, Illinois. And I work in our, um, essentially in our healthcare consulting division, uh, focused in um, bariatric surgery. And um, we've seen over the past five years, since I've been in the business, um, access to surgery has increased, Um, the efficacy of the procedures um, has increased. And um, there seems to still be anecdotally um, inaccess for our people. Um, I've been in over 150 bariatric cases, specifically sleeve gastrectomies. And I've probably seen less than five um, cases where I've identified a patient to be a person of color, um, specifically a a person uh, of uh, African-American descent. Um, Out of the five, I think I've seen one male. Uh, black man, uh, man, black man, that's been, um, you know, getting a procedure. Um, so, you know, when I have conversations with my bariatric surgeons, uh, most of them are identified as um, white, uh, Caucasian, or uh, Asian American men. Um, there seems to be an access from that regard as far as um, uh, our people um, as a practitioner. But I guess my question comes from you know, the panelists, practitioners and advocates, um, the conversation around bariatric surgery, we know that um, it's been proven that it's a sustainable way for weight loss and not just weight loss, but also uh, the loss of comorbidities after procedure um, and the efficacy that's been there. But are we starting to think about conversations to provide more access uh, for um, individuals to know that they have this as an option? And um, are we doing anything uh, from a, is there anything that we can do from an industry perspective um, to be a part of that conversation and to support in that manner?
4: I I have a personal uh, situation here. Um, I've had bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. And I remember the, and I had several comorbidities, hypertension, diabetes, all of it. And I remember the, and, and you know, and I'm fairly educated and I did all my research. And I can remember the hoops that I had to go through with, I had to do the, uh, the, the, the cardiologist, I had to do the psychiatrist, I had to do, I didn't see all of these doctors, some I was familiar with and some I was not, um, to, to qualify for this surgery. So that's one of the issues. If you, know, if, you, you, if you don't even have a doctor and they're trying to send you to 20, before you can be qualified for the bariatric surgery and the time that you have to put in to do it so you can't have a nine to five job that you have to be at you have to you know schedule these things when 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 possible there's another side to the bariatric surgery though because i've got the quote covid 20 when you know when COVID hit and i looked at that and had to go back to the doctor so that we could start to talk about some pharmaceutical therapy that I would need to maintain what, you know, what benefit I got from the, from the actual surgery. So there's a, there's a whole continuum. This thing doesn't stop because you get bariatric surgery. There's a continuum of things that, that need to be available to the patient. And, and medication is definitely one of them. So I'm now on medication, just started medication. And, and I'm, I'm losing the weight again, but I realize, in medication is like $1,500. So I'm realizing that if you don't have access, if they're not finding a way for you, to, who else can do this? I, I realize that this is an impossible situation. It becomes a, an impossible situation. And you don't wanna mess up everything that you gained from the bariatric surgery, but you, you go through all of that to get access and then you can still gain weight back, and then it seems to be no a never-ending situation. So you still need medical care to follow through after bariatric surgery. You need to be monitored, you need to be diligent, and sometimes you need medication to bring you back. I'm no longer diabetic, I, I, I no longer have hypertension, thank God, but I don't wanna go back to that. And that you know brings panic and stress to the individual in the community so there's an the issue of access and the hoops that they put you through to qualify you and then there's the, the, the issue of continual aftercare. it is critical these doctors here are brilliant you need to be able to see them talk to them and deal with them regularly
1: after the bariatric surgery and just, just one, one okay. quick thing okay. um, you know another thing that we're dealing with is sometimes patients will be discouraged from even exploring these options they will go to the provider and say, I'm interested in, bad- you don't need that. You know, you just need a, slow down, get on the treadmill, etc. because once again, we're thinking that those of us who don't have excess weight, is because we know exactly what to eat, and we know it as physically active to be, and that's why we look the way we do, and so if, if you don't look the way I do, something is clearly wrong. You have a moral failure. You're not doing everything you need to do, and if that is in the minds of our practitioners, they will not um, support a patient going through the hoops that we've talked about here, and even when you think about the hoops that are required, it's almost like some of our payers are telling the patient, you know, you shouldn't have found yourself here in the first place. Mm-hmm. So these are the, the next set of things I'm going to require you to do. So once again, it's understanding that there's a physiologic reason behind it, right? We cannot uh, be so precise in what we eat and the energy we burn every day that maintains that weight. We have internally have complex processes that help us to maintain the weight that we are, whatever it is. And so someone trying to overcome that to lose weight, it's almost like they're working against their own. Body to do it. And once we understand that concept, just as with any other uh, medical condition, then we're gonna be able to support the patient and get them where they need and get them the support that they need, whether it's surgery, pharmacotherapy, lifestyle interventions, whatever is required. Thank
5: you so much. Do we have time for real quick? Real quick. (laughs) So in our in our report, which is coming out, one of the things that we looked at, we asked the question of why. Why are so few people? getting access to bariatric surgery and um, anti-obesity medications. A lot of this has to do with the lack of training of health professionals. The the statistics are ridiculous. About 30% of medical schools actually do any, have any courses in nutrition and obesity. So you're bringing out a, a crop of doctors who really are not prepared and they will say they're not prepared. Uh, and our system, sort of, insurance companies often require the the uh, internist, the you know, the family doc, to be the gatekeeper. They don't have the expertise, and so that's why they come up with these. You know, you know, you don't need it. And the other thing is they don't have the tools. So they don't have a lot of time. They don't have the materials. And um, so it, re- it results in a lot of people just basically falling through the cracks.
2: But the black people specifically, to your
5: point, there's this issue of worthiness.
2: Black folks have to work harder to prove that they deserve right. to be yeah. referred for surgery, to be given uh, pharmaceuticals in order for weight management to take place. There was, at a conference that I attended, they presented data. 90% of the patients who underwent bariatric surgery were Caucasian everyone it was like it was like a wannel, what i call a white panel the wannel, and I, every, it was just white white on white and i asked the question if the majority of individuals dealing with obesity are people of color why, why? aren't more people of color yeah. being referred and it was crickets and i said it's because of racism and stigma you assume that we should know better we should do better therefore you are not worthy to be referred and that's something that needs to be addressed in medicine as well
4: and that's mm-hmm. also why you need a navigator on the ground absolutely somebody that that could be at the church that the person could call that could link the person to care and monitor the person through because dealing with the devil is a monster mm-hmm. and you have to go through a lot to deal with the devil and, and the community understands that if you give them somebody that has the tools that will help them get through the crisis, they'll be okay.
0: Didn't I tell you, you were in for a treat today? Let's give this phenomenal panel a round of applause.